This episode was originally a live conversation which took place at the Ceph Founders Conference in 2023. At the beginning, we were even teased by some of our investors and board members of having like a kumbayala culture where everything is good and fine and family and so on. And slowly we had to go more into like having a tighter performance management and really managing people out that are not performing and almost taking a little bit of advantage of the system. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. So it's time for our next panel. We already touched up on this topic multiple times today, culture and organization. So it's my big pleasure to have a panel with three guests today. I'm going to introduce them one by one. The first guest is Anna Grassler. She is the co-CEO at Felfel. They provide daily fresh meals for corporates, offices all around Switzerland, thanks to their smart fridge technology. Before that, she actually worked in business development and marketing for companies like L'Oreal or Gartnerei. So please welcome Anna on the panel. <laughs> Our second panelist is Christian Grossman. He's the co-founder and head B of Beekeeper. They're a frontline operating system provider with clients all over the world. So a real scale up here in Switzerland. He comes from a Swiss-Mexican entrepreneurial family, holds a PhD in electrical engineering from ETH. And fun fact, Beekeeper actually started up out as a Swiss Tinder called BlickClick back in the days. Welcome, Chris. And our third panelist is Sven Jakeli from Fay. He's the co-founder and CEO there. They are an e-commerce houseplant provider, and they also offer plant care courses for serial plant killers like myself, unfortunately. So he helps you out to take better care of your plants. He holds a master degree from the University of Zurich in economics, and he also likes plants, in case that wasn't clear yet. Welcome, Sven. So great to have all of you here. I actually want to start with you directly, Sven. So you've worked in corporates as a product manager also before, before you then started your own company, Faye. Was that always a dream of yours to start a startup, to have your own company and be your own boss? No, I, I guess it was like with most people, I stumbled on it by accident. So I, all the jobs I had, I liked at the beginning, but after a few months, I, when I knew how it works and the daily routine kicked in, then I got bored and at some point, uh, I just started something on my own. Now I know why I didn't like it before. Nice. I think that's the best journey probably, right? Anna, you also founded your first venture called Glambox during your master's degree. You then sold that, worked for different companies, as we heard in the intro, before you then joined Felfel and in 2022 became co-CEO. What made you run a startup again? <laughs> Actually, when I was uh, founding and running Glambox, I was in parallel working for L'Oreal in Paris. So during the day I was 
you know, one little piece in a huge machinery. And during the night, I was running uh, this uh, startup company. And there it got very clear to me that um, big companies are not really for me. I love it to work in small and young and ambitious structures with no politics, very short decision-making paths, uh, where it can just have so much more impact and uh, yeah, really drive an idea and a strategy forward. Amazing. <laughs> And Chris, Beekeeper is 12 years old now. Impressive story. How has the company changed over these years and how have you changed along with it? <laughs> yeah, I think change has been the one constant throughout this year. So everything has changed a lot. And I always say that the bottleneck is at the top of the bottle. So everything has to evolve so that the organization keeps on growing, the leaders keep on growing. As co-founders, we've changed roles, we've evolved. So lots of changes, definitely the one constant throughout. I'm sure you have plenty of stories and experiences to share. Absolutely. We're going to talk about culture and organization today. And culture, you know, it's such a big word and it's not always clear what does that actually mean. So Anna, what does culture mean to you or also Felfel as a company? To us, culture means a shared set of values, a shared understanding of how we work together. It's also a a question of team spirit. And I think culture, it's on one hand, it's the glue that really holds us all together, but it's also the oil that just makes the machinery work so well. So it's um, yeah, all the shared understandings that you can't see, but everybody internally knows them and it drives us forward. Would you say it's sort of also a way to really align everybody to row in the same direction as a company? Yes, definitely. And it, I think if you have a strong company culture, it also helps you to have great speed because it guides you in also your decision-making um, uh, moments. I think if you have a, a shared culture and shared values, when you're in a moment of stress and where uh, spontaneously you want every employee to be empowered to take uh, decisions uh, as of their best belief, if you have a shared strong culture, you know I mean, I know that they will never be far off, but it also gives confidence to them to actually, you know, feel empowered. That's a very important point, actually. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You guys just feel free to add with your perspectives. Sven, I want to know from you, you know, you're building Faye, you're growing as a company. How do you actually actively build, but also shape your company culture? It sounds easy in theory, but it's probably pretty difficult in practice. Um, so in e-commerce, we always, if you talk about customers, we always talk about customer journeys, right? With, with different touch points and how important they are that someone at some point converts. And we basically look at the same, with the same system at our employees or our culture. So the culture itself in the end is just a series of touch points which an employee has with the company, with, with the heads of teams, but also with customers. And we try to, to get them as good as possible. So it's not just be on pizza on Friday, but it's, it's so many small steps along the way. And we just try to basically have all those steps aligned with our values. Anna mentioned the importance of values before. Chris, what makes good values? You know, what, what are, is the right set of value for my company? Yeah, I think values is definitely one very important piece of the overall culture. Uh, I think what makes a really good set of values is something that really represents how you act as an organization, how you take decisions, how you want to be perceived outside, as you say, through all of those touch points. And I think it's really about 
It can be any set, but it has to be something that you really live day in and day out. And I think that's something we have invested a lot of time in ingraining those values into everything we do, from hiring to performance reviews to how we even talk to each other. So I think it's, it's an endless task to embed those into all the different touch points that, that there are. Yeah. Can you give us a few more examples here? Because it sounds values is much more than just putting the posters on the wall and saying, we want to be honest. How Absolutely. do you embed that in your daily operations? Do you explain your decisions that you make based on your values, for example? Yes, definitely. That, that's one of the, the, the things. Um, another concrete example is, for example, in performance reviews, we encourage every manager to sit together with their teams and direct reports and have conversations on how did we leave, for example, the value of be open. That's a very important value for us, which has to do with giving feedback positive always praise, but also the hard conversations, the tough things that need to be addressed, right? So it's pushing and setting the framework so that those things uh, can happen. We also have another value called be frontline first, which is about really embracing this idea that we can change the way frontline organizations and frontline teams work. And that's something that we try to trickle down from product development to send our product managers and really spend time with our customers. We have an initiative company-wide called Frontline Ice, where we spend also one day and go and work together with companies. So I've gone and baked cookies in the Hook factory uh, myself for the whole day to really get close to them. So it's being creative and finding ways to live those values. It sounds like really walking the talk, right? Totally, totally. Sven, you as a founder, um, what do you think about the standard values? Should you have or hold yourself as a founder accountable to a higher set of values compared to your employees or maybe even a lower set of values because you're the founder of your company? How do you see that? Mm, I guess the same. I mean, if you don't work according to your values as a founder, then you have a big cultural issue in the company because why should somebody else work according to values then? Um, but in the end, I mean, we're also just human. So at some point, I, I guess we'll also not work according to some values. And then I expect the employees to tell me this, right? And this is something we try to live by. How do you see that, Chris? Is it the same or even higher standard? I think at least the same, if probably not, not even higher. Uh, I agree, we're humans and we can make mistakes. And it's important to have that culture where also employees can call out those things and say, hey, I don't think we were as open as we could have been here or, or so, right? I think there's this great book by Ben Horowitz who talks about that. And it's really the culture is in the things that you don't even write. It's how you act, how you talk, how you make decisions. And that's really what impregnates the, the culture. And values is, I would say, an attempt to capture that. And the more aligned it is, the better. But ultimately, the culture comes really from that uh, behavior and, and the decisions that you make. And Anna, I'm just curious. You came into Felfel after the foundation. Yeah. It's 150 people now, roughly. It's sort of a family business. Yeah. How was the, the embedment in the culture for you, you know, coming from external? Well, I mean, I, luckily I joined Felfel very early on. So it was really the moment we were a team of 10 people by then and the product was ready to bring it out on the market. So it was, it was still very much a beginning. And I remember the first summer I joined, we actually, the whole team together, we went for a weekend away on an outing. And that's where we have, as a group, defined the initial set of values. So I think, I, I mean, I I'm strongly believe in leading by example, but at the same time, I think it's also important that you 
um, listen to your team, your employees, and you, you build a culture and values together with them. And that you also stay open to um, ha have the culture evolve uh, mm -hmm. over time. Talk a bit about that process of defining and setting the values. You were involved there as well, together with the founders. Did you involve the whole company or was it more like the leadership team that did that task? No, well, back then it was really uh, the 10 of us. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. it was really, really nice. And um, uh, it, it was, uh, we had three values back then. So first, delicious, because of course we're all about good food. <laughs> I'm getting hungry now. Uh, excellence. So this combination of speed and quality, which is not so easy to combine sometimes. And, the, and, and love and respect, which is how we want to treat each other, but also our clients, our partners, and, uh, and the environment. And uh, I just remember there was this moment when also everyone in the team kind of explained what it means for them, this, uh, this uh, value. And... Uh, one of our first uh, software developers, he explained love and respect. And he said, you know, for me, it's when I develop a graph that uh, marketing uses uh, to analyze numbers, uh, it means that I put uh, love and make it nice into it because I want them to actually be able to read it as easily as possible. And um, so, you know, I've, this is always so nice to see when different departments where you think... <laughs> Uh, maybe uh, they're more on the excellent side, uh, let's say the tech uh, team, they also really, um, you know, live all, all the other values. That's a great example of having a good <laughs> culture, I mm -hmm. imagine. Mm -hmm. Chris, you have about 250 employees now spread across the globe to a certain degree. Is there any way to measure the culture, any certain KPIs that you want to track to really focus on the culture and see are we doing better or worse compared to last month, last year, whatever? No, to be honest, we don't have like a culture KPI per se. I think there are in, indirect measurements that point towards that, but it's not like we have a culture KPI. So we track, of course, things like employee attrition, like how long people stay with us. And behind it, it's the assumption that, well, if the culture is strong and they like it, they will stay longer. We follow things like employee engagement with tools like Office Pipe just to get a general feel. It goes beyond culture. It's certainly one part of it, but it's not everything. And lately, we've made a very good experience with this kudos that you can send via Office Pipe, like Good Vibes, it's called. Nice. We have cards that represent our values, and then you see people sending a lot of those value kudos, like you really lift up to being frontline first in this example and this customer meeting, and so on. So I wouldn't say there's like one culture KPI, uh, but there are surrogate measures to that point again. Oh, I love this kudo idea. It's, uh, yeah, it has worked fantastically. It, yeah, yeah. That's so nice. That's a cool take-home message. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Sven, how does it look like when you are just scaling up with your company? You're growing, but you're still at the smaller size. How do you take care and also try to measure your culture? Is that more of a gut feeling that you get by, you know, being around the employees, maybe sharing the same office space? Yeah, I guess. I mean, we are now between 30 and 40 people, so it's still small, and you do have this gut feeling and feel if everything is wrong or if something is, is not broken but not working accordingly. So most of it is gut feeling and talking with people. And culture obviously also has a big impact on hiring decisions. Mm -hmm. Anna, you can share a story here that you once said, you don't, I love that one. <laughs> <to> you. <laughs> you don't want to hire any smokers, for example. That's something that you strongly believe in at Felfel. 
So that's a very strong value that you then also embed in your hiring process. Can you talk a bit more about the pros and cons of having such a strong statement in the hiring? <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of a gray zone, I know. Um, however, I mean, we're about good foods, healthy, fresh um, cooking. It's about lifestyle, uh, fell, fell uh, in the office. So for us, we have a very, very strict non-smoking uh, policy in the office. And of course, um, this means that we can only hire people that are non-smokers. And um, this has been like this since foundation. And uh, yeah, so we do check this actually in every single recruiting process, um, if there's a smoker or not. And yeah. <laughs> what happens if you have, just imagining, if you have a great candidate, you think this person works perfectly for the role that we try to fill, but that person smokes. What do you do? Do you not hire the person? No, we don't. I mean, normally we uh, we do realize this early on. It's also written in our job description. So it's, you know, generally it's also people that share our culture and, and our values and lifestyle even before they apply, right? And um, yeah, we have had quite recently, and actually it was the first time we have had this experience that we actually did hire someone. And only after signing the contract, <laughs> we realized that it's a, it's, it's a smoker, but like a real smoker, you know, throughout the whole day. And then, uh, yeah, I, I had to have a bit of special call with this person. And for us, it was uh, not an option to, to integrate the person to the team because I strongly believe you cannot dilute your culture. Uh, I mean, what's the most important asset of, of any company? It's the team. And you have to really stand by your rules. And it would be a very weird signal towards the other 149 people if all of a sudden... You make exceptions just because you're in bitter need of a, of a talent. Yeah, this was in January and the role is still open. So it was a tough decision, but um, I'm, I'm 100% sure it was the right one still. I mean, it's not about smoking or non-smoking. That's just one example, right? It could be any value that is important to Absolutely, you. Absolutely, yes. But there are drawbacks. So mm -hmm. the position is still open, especially in a scarce job market as you are in right now. Everyone is looking for talent. Yeah. Do you sometimes feel that this also, you know, puts you a bit back, that it slows your growth down or the success of your company? No, really, I, I think it's just the other way around. Because I'm sure you've also made this experience. I feel it's more like every time you do make an exception, that's when you get a real uh, drawback. Because you lose so much time, you know. When you're in this hiring decision and it's a maybe, and you say, oh, we really, really need uh, someone in this position, and you turn the maybe into a yes. For me, 95% yeah, of totally. the times, Doesn't I work. regret it two or three or four or five months later. Yeah. Then you open the position again, and you, you lose a whole year, right? So I think being strict in hiring decisions, it's a, it's a recipe for success in the end. It needs a lot of discipline, but yes. to execute yes. that. And I saw a lot of nodding heads, so it's mm -hmm. either hell yes or hell no. Absolutely, yes. And Chris, we talked about values, but part of the culture is also the mission and the vision statement to really align the people and the whole organization. Can you talk a bit more about what they look like at Beekeeper and how you actually also execute them to ensure that there's alignment across the team? Yeah, for sure. So in, in our experience, I mean, we, we have from that perspective a bit of an easy situation because it's very graspable what we do. It's frontline workers that work with pen and paper and it's super tedious. They hate it. They leave companies because of that. And we give them easy, simple technology to alleviate many of those pains. So 
our job has been more to surface a lot of those stories for our employees to see the impact of the work they're doing day in and day out. And that has been, I think, a bit of a ongoing story. We can always do, do more. And we try to put a lot of those stories in front of our team so that they feel inspired by that mission of connecting frontline teams with everything that they need to do a great job. Because we believe it has two great benefits, one for the frontline worker themselves. So there's mm -hmm. a bit of a social impact aspect to it. But then also for the businesses, they're more productive, they're more engaged, they're more uh, efficient. So it has been, I would say, an ongoing uh, task of ours to, to surface that. And it's not always easy. So it, it does require some thinking, some time, some communication, some uh, being explicit and intentional about those things. It sounds like all three the values, but also mission and vision that you cannot get tired of repeating them often enough. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Yes. And Chris, I want to know a bit more because with 250 people, you probably had this situation multiple times. I, I think there are two dimensions, right? You have the performance part. Let's assume performance is solid, that's working. But suddenly the values that were there when he initially hired the person, that there's sort of a misfit. They don't hold up the values anymore. You feel like they're not really aligned there anymore. What do you do? Do you immediately have to separate and go separate ways? Or do you try to coach them to bring them back? What's your experience on that? Yeah, so I think in my experience, the, what you described is probably the most difficult one, somebody that is really performing and doing great. But on the other hand, on the values, either you find out slowly that it's not the case, and those are maybe even more difficult because it takes time, it's maybe not super clear, and so on. And there are other cases where it's much more abrupt. And we've had those, those cases, right, where it became very clear that that person was playing politics or doing things that we just don't accept. And we had to take calls there really quickly and really hard to just uh, end that. That is, I would say, the exception. We don't roll like that. And it's not like, oh, we feel like you don't comply anymore and so on. We always try to find the path of getting, let's say, back on track and, and understand if really it's a complete value misalignment or maybe that person was having a tough day, tough week, tough month, whatever. So we, we do try to put that uh, effort in understanding and finding a, a, a way back. But we've also done mistakes in hiring and we've ended up in, in those situations. So, how, how do you have these conversations? Is that like a one-on-one -on -one with your manager where you uncover these situations or how do you communicate that with the employees? Yeah, in, in, so many of these situations, it's funny because it, it's not necessarily the manager and the one who hired that person that identifies the issue, but you start noticing a little bit from, from around. Okay. So it's more the colleagues, the peers, up, down, the one where, where you start getting like those signals of, hmm, there, there's something wrong here. Sometimes the managers are maybe the last ones to see it just because they have already hired that person. They're onboarding them and maybe they don't get those signals. So it's like we, we try to help them understand that and surface that, uh, that type of information. And then, yes, at the end, it's a conversation between the manager and the, the person or sometimes HR, our people team, on uh, supporting those conversations. Yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. Anna, you were with 10 people at Felfail and now you're at 150. How does the culture topic change when you actually scale a company and you grow? Is it still the same, but more of the same? Or were there profound changes that you had to adapt to as an organization? So I really think we managed still today to keep the culture extremely similar to what it was 10 years ago. Um, 
<laughs> somebody asked me this, I think, three years ago, and then I said, because, for example, we have this one tr small tradition when it's the birthday of someone, we uh, select another person in the team that has to bake the birthday cake, and the whole company comes together at some point during the day to sing happy birthday. It's always very embarrassing, and I think most of people don't really like it, but in the end, they do like it, you know, because it's still nice. <laughs> and, um, of course, as we are all about good food and also quite competitive, the cakes are awesome. So, uh, And a few years ago, I said, well, whether you're 10 people or 100, it, for the individual, the birthday is as important, right? It doesn't really matter. And um, now with 150 uh, people, we just had last week this discussion in our team lead circle again, because slowly there are few people that really don't like it anymore. And uh, I'm just now, you know, exactly in this moment of trading off, okay, what are just the core sets of, of, of culture or of value that I want to insist in keeping and which ones am I, uh, yeah, or do I actually have to let go of or change a little bit? But for the moment, we keep the birthday uh, celebrations, for example. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. How is that for you? Because you're 100 people more than 150 or 250. How did you handle that trade-off? Yeah, I'll, I'll be a little bit contrarian here because for us, it has changed. Mm -hmm. So there are certain things that have stayed the same and the values have been constant and so on. But I do think that throughout these years, the culture has changed. And I think it has been for good because only through that we have been able to grow and to achieve other, uh, yeah, other stages of the company. And it's always a hard conversation because at the beginning, we used to do certain things. Employees notice that things change as we go. At the beginning, we were even teased by some of our investors and board members of having like a kumbayala culture where everything is good and fine and family and so on. And slowly, we had to go more into like having a tighter performance management and really managing people out that are not performing and almost taking a little bit of advantage of the system. So there have been changes that we have to go through through times. We've brought new executives, new talent with other ideas. So I think it has been a healthy change, always somehow keeping certain things and certain traditions or values and so on somehow constant. But it's always debatable when people say, oh, we feel like the culture is changing. It's like, well, yeah, it's actually sometimes good that, that we change and we do things differently for a good reason. Yeah. Got it. And often, you know, if you read in the media, we had Urs Holze from Google here. Google is famous for having a lot of benefits, a lot of perks for their employees. How important is that? I start with you, Sven, for your company culture to also offer benefits to your employees, because probably, especially if you're a smaller company, you cannot keep up with the regular salaries that corporates will pay usually. We actually don't have these benefits like Netflix or... Spotify or whatever. Um, and I think when you talk about salary, you should pay fair salary, even though if you're just a startup, right? But you can obviously compensate with, with shares, etc. So it doesn't matter at what stage you are, you should pay fair salary if you want to have good people. Um, and what we, we, we think the important benefits are then when, for example, something happens at home with someone, then the company needs to be there and support as good as you can and the team. Right? And that's the most important moments, I guess. So, or if something happens in a team and there's a fight, then it's important that the company reacts right. And that's way more important than benefits, especially in our stage, because 
if someone joins us because of some benefits, I don't want to have this person because they should join because they want to be part of the project and, and have an intrinsic motivation, not just because we have a ping pong table, right? It's also important, but it's not the thing which matters. Matter. Anna, if you had to give one example each, one benefit that is totally worth the money that you spend on it, maybe food, I could imagine, and one that is just a waste of money, which one would you pick? I mean, I would always pick a fell-fell for your employees. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like for real, because I think so much happens over the lunch break. Like that's when people come together, when they relax, when you can mix teams. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is the culture oily uh, moment, right? So I would always invest in uh, common lunch breaks. And what I would not invest in, yeah, it's the, the individual stuff. Right? I mean, like in two weeks, we're going to uh, participate at the company triathlon. We're actually a sponsor uh, of this event. So again, like it's investing in getting together, right? While, for example, giving a gym membership where everybody goes alone, maybe uh, not the best idea. I like that. You know, when we talk about the scaling of the culture, it can also get out of hand a bit, where you feel like, well, the culture is developing in a, in a direction that I don't really like. Did you ever have that feeling to, by, by growing to 250 people, Chris? So we definitely had the feeling that sometimes things were going too fast and like uh, almost feeling like we were, they were getting out of hand. I don't know if it was a cultural thing per se, but just like a bit of a rush of, hey, we need to hire and we need to bring the teams in and we need to hit our plans and our numbers. So I think it was uh, more that from a cultural perspective, um, not, not necessarily. Uh, how, how did you feel when you stopped knowing all the employees by faces, by names even? Was that a, a difficult change for you? Yes, it's a strange feeling. It's a strange feeling. Um, I've tried to combat it by spending a lot of time with our team. So I go regularly to visit them in the US, in Germany, in Poland, and so on. And that helps alleviate it a little bit by having shared time together, doing experiences together, and so on. But yeah, there's a It'll point. It would be impossible to know all 250 employees by yes, first name, yes, I yes. imagine. My target now is at least the first name and the face to be able to associate. Okay. Last names are too many. <laughs> That's an ambitious goal. Yes. And I also wonder, you know, the churn rate of employees is an important part where you say, hey, if we have a good culture, we actually have a lower employee churn rate. So people don't leave our company because they want to go somewhere else. They actually want to stay with us because the culture is so good. Anna, do you measure that in any way? Do you say, hey, this is really important to focus on, to have the churn of employees under control, similar to customers? Um, yes, of course, we do measure it. However, you know, I think in the first five to uh, ten, no, five to eight years after building a company, there is natural churn because you need different people when you're only 10 and have only 10 job profiles than when you're 100 or, or 150 because the job profiles get more and more specific. And the people that wanted to be part of the company in the beginning, they are all rounders. They don't want to have such a specific uh, job um, uh, position, right? right. So um, I have experienced 
I think, two or for sure two or even three complete churn rounds over the last seven years. So I think early on it's hard to measure churn, but it's only now that it really um, gets uh, more measurable, I think. And there, you know, it's not only the culture that's really important. I also think it's uh, it's about yeah, the purpose that you have as a company that you give to your uh, employees and that you actually really live this purpose and have lots of yeah, examples where they see that you're actually serious about about it. And another, I think, big challenge uh, for for younger companies is also this people development path. That sometimes it's hard to show it because, of course, I don't have five different ranks in my um, customer success team, for example, or I mean, in any team. And yeah, if you have corporate people coming in, they expect to know exactly what's the next step, what's the next step. And there you need people to understand that if you join a young company, you don't know what's next. But you know there is always a next step. It just might only come up over time and still be hidden around the corner. Sven, are these already conversations that you have with your employees to say, hey, where, where can I grow? What is my career path at Faye? Although you are only in question... Yeah. Mark, like 13 to 14 people. Yeah, I mean, I try to, um, we are quite transparent when it comes to this. So I explain what happens if everything goes well, you know, the next few years and, and try to, to show people that things like this can happen. So they are a bit prepared and they know it's fine. You know, um, I think it, it's not a bad thing if you are someone who just likes the 10 or 20 people teams and then it's fine for you and you can leave, right? So yeah, this is how we handle it. We talk a lot about it and... I think that's also important to know, right? Not every person is the right fit at the, all the stages that your company grows through. I want to know from you, Chris, how do you structure these roles in different hierarchies and also career paths? Do you have sort of a thing or a setup that is working well for you right now? Yes, we started doing a lot of that, I would say, after the, the pandemic. So before the pandemic, we had, I would say, the normal churn of we were growing and at some, people, at some point some people didn't fit quite well to where we were going and that was kind of like the natural churn but nothing worrying. Then during the pandemic we had a very interesting dynamic where two things happened. One, we were able to attract a lot of people and kind of like take them easily from companies but our employees were also taken away from us, <laughs> from companies. I don't know if it was the effect of people sitting alone in their home during the pandemic, lockdown and so on but there we did see churn and just that overall change of people increase substantially. And we invested a lot of time in, in kind of like try to figure out why that was the case and how to address it. And one of the things that we have been working since then are these career levels and personal development plans and trying to show people what it is that they can do on, on, uh, at Beekeeper. We have teams, for example, engineering that they, they're very engineering in their approaches that have really scoped out the full levels and they know which skills you need to be a junior and a senior and a master and so on. So we've invested a lot in those frameworks. I think it gives some sort of comfort and clarity for people to know, okay, these are the things that I need to do in order to get to the next level. And yeah, so... It's also very transparent and very aligned, basically. Correct. That's important. Yes. We will open for questions, so get them ready in one minute. I have one question for all of you, and that's about hiring family and friends. You know, some people think, hey, this is the perfect culture fit. I spent my life with them. We grew up together, whatever it is. So I want to know from each of you, yes or no, hiring family and friends, and why? Let's start with you, Sven. 
I mean, generally no, but we have some family members working for us, but only if the profile fits. So um, we didn't hire any friends, although, I mean, obviously lots of friends would like to join at the beginning if everything goes well, right? But there we, yeah, we don't do it, even if it's hard. Chris? I think yes. And the important thing is to have certain hygiene factors in place, like there are no direct reports, you don't get involved in salary conversations and so on. I am actually the first example of that. So my brother and my wife work at Beekeeper. So it's something that we had to discuss with the board to disclose it, to find a solution. And yes, it's always a bit of a tricky situation. But the flip side is also you have just lots of trust and lots of uh, alignment just from the get-go, right? So that's why I am on the yes camp. Oh, no, Felfel is a very unique setup, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, our founders are a couple. So um, we have had several couples uh, within Felfel uh, over, over the years. I'm still more in the no camp. I think the risk of... Um, I think it's always um, combined with quite quite a big risk. You know, if you have one fantastic person uh, in the team and then you hire uh, somebody from their family as well, what if it doesn't work out with that second person? It will have for sure also bad effect on your first uh, uh, high performer. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit critical about this topic. Mm-hmm. As everything, it has pros and cons, I yeah. guess. So let's open up for questions. Anyone has any questions for the panel? Okay, nobody. Then I have one final question for all of you. What is one thing that your companies can still improve in terms of culture? Just one thing that you can mention. Let's start with you again, Sven. I think we could celebrate more often. Um, That's a typical Swiss thing, I think. (laughs) Chris? I think there there are many things that that we could improve. Certainly, now that we're going back to being in the office and so on, spending more time face-to-face is something that we're certainly still uh, wrestling with on how to bring people back together and have more of that face-to-face time because we still believe it's powerful to create and live that culture. So, Mm -hmm. Anna? For me... Um, I really think now that we're at this threshold of 150 people, um, you know, the culture always has to be aligned with the strategy and the organizational structure. And I do think in the next couple of months, we will have to (laughs) let go of some of these uh, (laughs) cultural stuff that I actually really love and yeah, just reshape it a tiny little bit to adapt it to the new size. Great. Hey, thank you all so much, Sven, Chris, Anna, for being on the panel today. Lots of success and all the best for the future. Thank you. Wonderful. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.